I'm really bad with uh, uh, the Dutch language and, and Frisian language, apparently. Mm -hmm. So would you mind introducing yourself and just give a quick background? Uh, this will go up as an, as an intro to the video and uh, let people know who you are and why you're doing this. Okay. Well, I'm a photo photographer and a science journalist. And I came into this dossier of the farmers and especially fishermen uh, because I also uh, worked as their ecological advisor in court cases because the government was uh, accusing them together with environmentalists that they were damaging the seabed. And then by doing research, then I thought, hey, uh, it's not about science because the science is so weak that it must be something different. So then I looked at the, the econo economic arguments and hey, well, it's not about economics as well. So then you start looking uh, further and then you see there's an ideology behind it with different values than I cherish. And from these values, and this will, uh, we will see in our conversation, uh, instead of starting with the science, which of course you have to have rights, or economics, if you want to win the discussion and the battle, you start with morals and with values, because then you also have real strong ground to stand on and something to fight for. Because you do not fight for 10% more wage or 5% more wage, you fight for your independence, for your family, for things that you have, and for nature that's your own garden, your paradise, and your enterprise that you love. And so the basic is love. And from there on, all the rest follows. Mm -hmm. So you've uh, real world experience and observation resulting in a, a desire to uh, uh, change the things that were wrong, or at least shed some light on it in order to make a difference and get things back to where they're supposed to be. Well, it, it actually was more uh, a, a fight. Uh, you start at the wrong arguments uh, because you are pushed into it by the uh, opponent. They say it's about the science, but you uh, discover it's not about science. It's even not about economics, you on the, on, uh, already understand. It's about health. No, it's not about no, health. No, no. Yeah. So, instead of... Uh, maybe this conversation can help people to shorten the time span that it took me to get to the point where I, uh, I discovered, oh, it's really about uh, defining your values and from there on starting your own fight and, uh, and also ex explaining to other people what world you want to live in. And we have done a poor job on, uh, until now. So what took me like 10 years, 15 years, uh, I hope we can do in like 15 minutes or maybe one, yeah. hour, one hour. And we have to because we don't have a lot of time. No, no, no. <laughs> so, uh, have you seen, uh, you see stuff from the convoy? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was great that they were, they were actually uh, interacting with the Dutch farmers and also the Dutch, uh, the Dutch truck drivers here. So it was here in, uh, in Friesland that you also had the biggest convoy of uh, truckers. This was in February, and they were uh, welcomed like the liberators from uh, the Allied forces uh, in '44 after D-Day. That's what I imagined it was like in Canada too. Every yeah. overpass, every highway, people cheering, signs. Yeah, people were supporting them because they were really thinking like, "Hey, the government is uh, locking us up and uh, cheating on us," uh, and uh, everybody here, especially in Finland, had this feeling like, "Hey, this is a turning point. Now we we are somehow winning." That's what we thought too. Yeah. We did. But that's one of the reasons I ended up in Holland because when I was out there, I was in Ottawa, I, I drove a truck out there from mm -hmm. Alberta and I saw videos of the Dutch farmers with Canadian yeah. flags and I thought, yeah. oh, this is amazing. Yeah. So then when I saw the pictures of the Dutch farmers getting flipped by the government, I thought I got to go. I have to go and talk to them and, and support them and encourage them. Yeah. And, well, and get the story out, right? Yeah. That's what's happening. Well, that's a good job. Uh, we have farmers in our uh, group of friends, and so they're also uh, vets. Mm -hmm. 
So they're both they both have a PhD in uh, animal uh, husbandry and health, and they are both also farmers by uh, by choice of life. It's not because they earn a lot of money, but by but because they they love their way of living. I don't think anybody farms for the money. No, no, no. It's just a way of living that you want to uh, that you choose and. Well, lots, lots of farming has changed, especially since my youth. I grew up in the 80s here in Friesland, which is the, well, the biggest farming area of Holland, uh, with all these meadows, and it was still teeming with meadow birds, and uh, there were way more cows, like one million more cows in Holland than now. Uh, but then came the, the regulations on nitrogen, on uh, uh, the cow shit, that they wanted to reduce it, and... Uh, more regulations and regulations in the name of environment came. So then um, farming changed. For now they were confronted with big bureaucracy. So if you talk to an average farmer now in Holland, he's busy with bureaucracy at least three mornings in a week, which he cannot spend on, on other uh, time, things. Well, in my youth, uh, well, uh, it, when it was breeding seasons for, uh, for the meadow birds, uh, the farmers helped and they loved it because they loved to do just like with hunters they want to know what wildlife is on their farmland they, they loved it so they cooperated with the conservationists to uh, save uh, eggs from being destroyed by land by, by uh, agricultural machineries and they did it for fun not for money but that all changed because of all these environmental regulations so looking back then i just uh, but just by remembering what my youth was like, we had it was teeming with wildlife uh, in in the agricultural lands. It, uh, it was less uh, intensive farming, and uh, farmers had way more time for other things than bureaucracy, like for nature and for their own families. And then you saw actually that uh, there's an inverse relation between uh, environment and nature, and we should really make this distinction. There's a difference. Yeah. Nature and conservation is about conserving values that you appreciate. Just like hunters do in their land. They want to uh, preserve the land that they own. It's also about ownership. It's about uh, conserving cultural values. So that's why I also wrote a book about the Frisian natural histories, so that you do not make a distinction between human values and natural values because they interact and are intertwined it's nature is about something that you can see that you can touch from your own children and your wife to uh, the people around you that you love the land that you love and all uh, the the wildlife that surrounds us because if i walk here in the forest here in friesland i do this every morning i do training my uh, kung fu and I look around in nature, and if I see a sparrow hawk hunting, I used to be a falconer, uh, it really gives me, wow, I, I'm glad to be alive. If I see that, that it's, it's some, some sort of strange tension, if you see a hawk hunting through the forest, it gives some, as then you think, wow, I'm alive. This is why you protect nature. It's because you have this sensation that makes you adore life, that you, just like with religion, eh, being aware that there is a creation and it didn't come falling out of nothing but it's actually something to be reversed you have, you have a relationship with it that enriches you exactly yeah this is a relationship well environment is a human construction it's a statistical invention it's about uh, parameters computer models 
of bureaucrats and their academics calculating uh, averages of a, a certain parameter that needs to be uh, that needs to be maintained. But it doesn't tell anything thing about the real quality of life, the things that people, but also animals uh, and their interacting are experiencing. So this is the same also with climate policy or with all these bureaucratic measures that are taken in the name of saving the environment or the climate. What is climate? I never saw climate. There's weather. But climate is a human statistical invention. It's the average weather in an area over 30 years. So you cannot preserve climate. Of course not. Can you? you cannot preserve statistics. It's, it's a fata morgana. It's a, so it's a way different thing than saving nature, saving your area, your garden, your paradise. But by talking about climate, it gives people the impression that it's something they can control. Yeah, right? yeah. And this is also why constantly they're blaming the farmers and the fishermen, and after the farmers and the fishermen, then also the, the people, the civilians come. The groups that have the weakest support, also in terms of lobbying money, uh, like, like small family farmers, or uh, you used to own a restaurant, you told. Still do. The, Still do. The people who are vulnerable to, to bureaucracy. Yeah, they come first on the, on the dinner. Yeah, of the bureaucrats, of uh, oligarchs, and uh, well, the international institutions who are now pushing this, uh, this agenda. So that's what we now see in Holland. And it's the same with you uh, in Canada, as in the US, as here. Because it's the same program as the, the 2030 agenda. You have heard of it, of course. Yeah, this isn't this isn't things that our government has come up with to benefit us. This is outside influences, like we talked about before, yeah. that are coming in and saying, you need to do what we say. Mm -hmm. And not just because in your region it's a benefit. You need to do it because we say this has to happen because of our uh, climate agenda, our statistics, and our computer model. And yes. And, that, right? and the, the trick they do is always the same. Uh, first you have an international conference, then there's so uh, there's academics and bureaucrats and they had a conference and they told each other that this is the problem that we want to fix. And we have the audacity to say that we can switch to some parameters and we can make ideal nature and ideal climate. And at first it seems innocent, it's only suggestions that they make, but as soon as they make suggestions, you know that after 10 years mm -hmm. or 20 years, suggestions become obligations enforced by government, first through the UN, then it comes into Brussels, or in your uh, case uh, from Toronto, or the Commonwealth, and uh, then it lands on uh, the national desks, and from the national desks it comes into an obligation in uh, municipalities. It always happens like that, so people were just not aware of it when it was starting, like in the 70s it started with the Club of Rome, of course, uh, had limits to growth, and this has been the, well, the, the ghost floating around it. And we thought it was away, and it went away in the 80s, because then you had the Reagan administration in, in uh, the US, who was uh, blocking these extreme measurements from these, uh, well, the Club of Rome types of uh, people, Thatcherians, uh, then you had a different regime. Then the 90s came, you have the, had the regime of liberalization, coming and now it has been has come back with a with a with a vengeance so now it's had we thought it was away and it would not go that far but they have been pushing and pushing and pushing in in different names the same agendas
well, it's the perfect storm because we went from a time where we had legitimate civil uh, interest matters that we should be fighting for. Yeah. And it was virtuous to stand up for these rights and stuff. And now those things are mostly dealt with and people have nothing to be virtuous for. So now the virtue comes from saying, we need to stop driving. We need to stop heating our homes. We need to stop doing this. And, and people are made to feel virtuous for those those things. Yeah. Well, the whole agenda, it's, it's summarized in limits to growth. So growth is bad. Mm -hmm. Well, what is the natural uh, thing of a living creature? It wants to grow. The child wants to grow. It doesn't want to shrink and to be, uh, be suppressed. So it's an anti-life agenda. That's what it is. And, uh, well, they, they push it now. And uh, But you can also see uh, the good thing about it. I think that in the West in general, because we have lost our values, also about spiritual growth and uh, what is the, actually the definition of the good life, uh, we are, have become vulnerable. Because I can feel it also... Uh, you, you have uh, forms of resistance now coming on. Also, you have this group here in Friesland as well. It's called Fre uh, Fre Friesland, which means Free Frisia. But it's, it's, it's kind of new agey uh, stuff. And it's, uh, um, well, how can I say it? Mm, it's not a very strong uh, way of dealing with uh, real governmental aggression. You do not fight government lying on your yoga mat. Mm. You should, uh, and you fight it by, well, by using the, the right weapons. So the farmers have been in the front now of this resistance, and this is not a coincidence, because the farmers are one of the last professions of people who are uh, living in reality. They deal with reality, nature, every day. And they live on a place. And uh, this is the main uh, thing that has happened to us, uh, liberalism. Liberalism has come over us in the last 50 years, which has atomized all people uh, or put us back on ourselves uh, so you oh I, I don't mind what you do as long as you leave it to yourself and because you do not share values anymore so we are now because of this aggressive aggressive globalist nihilist agenda we are also challenged to well to uh, confess what we really stand for what, what the, on what basis do we unite and this is good, because we, we lost these values in the last 50 years. Uh, so that now I have a, a Muslim uh, who, uh, who uh, clips uh, my beard. Uh, and I, I share more values in some way than I share with most liberal, liberals. Because he still has a sense of awe for creation, for God, for that... A higher purpose. For the higher purpose. purpose. Belonging. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that most liberals don't. So, well... Um, and this is what I see, uh, also what people are now calling right-wing. It's now actually the right-wing party, the VVD, which was the Liberal Party, who is pushing this agenda of a World, a world Economic Forum. And they be, can be uh, interchanged with uh, the Green Left, the Green Left Party, which is uh, uh, the Communist Party from the 1987 that has changed its name to the Green Left. They can uh, be the government together now. No, but the core fight is a is a fight about values that you because uh, this is why the uh, the other party uh, is still is always winning because their main argument is uh, is a is a moral argument and if you do not confront it with the the right moral moral arguments uh, then you lose because uh, you can talk about science but nobody only point zero percent is 
actually really interested in facts or science. Or understand it. Or understand it. No, most people don't. And they don't care. Even the, the most, most environmentalists, they don't care. They just want to push their own uh, sense of what is good, good for their world and for their own uh, values. So it starts with value. So actually we are, chain, uh, chain, uh, we are challenged to articulate our values better. And I think that uh, what is now called the right wing uh, has done a poor job in doing this. Especially in the area of nature conservation. So that it has been hijacked totally by the environmentalists. Well, the problem with the right wing is they've... Uh, I don't believe this is a right or a left problem for start, but the right wing has been so concerned about making sure that they appeal to the other side a little bit, that they've yep. set aside some principles and they've set aside some truths in order to try and garner support that they wouldn't otherwise get. Yeah, I think, think that now, uh, so left and right have, uh, I've already told you, the, the green left uh, can be uh, easily exchanged with uh, the Liberal Party, who used to be the right-wing party for uh, enterprise people and who have a, who have a business, mm -hmm. uh, but now who is now actually uh, cheating on them. So uh, there's now more uh, a react reactionary party in uh, Holland. It's called FVD, which uh, actually uh, <coughs> uh, has politics based on values that the VVD, the Liberal Party, used to have. So, but it's it's actually the party for people who got disappointed in the VVD. I think I interviewed the leader for that party. Oh, you did, uh, Thierry uh, Baudet. No, oh, different party. Vibram uh, uh, van Hakka. Oh yeah, yeah. He used to work for them as well, and he's. Uh, a guy who owns uh, loads of uh, buildings and so, such, and he's also a businessman. And, um, well, they have been the fastest growing alternative for the VVD, and this is why they are radically demonized everywhere. There's even parties talking about that it has to be forbidden now, uh, but they are the biggest party with uh, the biggest membership. What do you mean it has to be forbidden? Like it's, they're trying to silence the, the, the party? Yeah, they want to... Uh, they want to make it illegal, the party now. They're, talk they're really talking about it to make it illegal now. In that Holland. doesn't sound very democratic. Well, they, want, they talk about uh, installing dictatorship to save democracy. Ah, yeah. Now, yeah. Makes sense. Make, really makes sense. makes sense. But they are actually more like reactionary. And uh, you do not have to agree with every point they say. I do not... Uh, I think uh, in nature conservation, they have... a very poor uh, job uh, in articulating what is to be saved about Holland, which is the, the, the landscape. Landscape is a Dutch word, of course, eh, from landschap, because we created our own nature here in a period of thousand years. We uh, dried the seas, we, uh, we, uh, from swamps, we turned them into uh, agricultural areas. We created our own country. And uh, by doing this, by all different practices, we created a uh, a mosaic of all kinds of different landscapes with all kinds of different uh, species, which is really still... So uh, the Dutch mastered the environment and made nature better. Yeah, more they productive. improved nature, but not, not only more productive, but also with more species of all kind of different kinds of landscapes. We have to still have the most beautiful dunes in Europe, uh, the uh, most beautiful seaside. We have the biggest tidal area of the world uh, where millions of birds come so it's actually for this overcrowded small country we have a big delta with rivers where lo loads of bird species come for this small country uh, by uh, by having uh, different approaches to nature management we we managed to succeed in, cre uh, in 
maintaining loads of uh, nature here. And now an organization tells you that what you've done is bad and you need to give it all back. Well, this all is now destroyed by the climate movement. Yeah, we had did a great job uh, until the 90s, uh, 2000s still. Uh, we had also had this problem that the, le the least productive farmland, okay, well, leave that to nature and larger nature areas. And this was then it was not still in the extreme. It was a, it was actually not a bad idea. It's balanced. It was still balanced, yeah. But they overreacted, and now they use it as a scheme to uh, buy out all farmers for like 29 billion euros and turn it into swamp again. And uh, then you uh, go to the other extreme. It's the same uh, they do it in the US. Uh, it's the program of uh, Michael Sula. It's called Wildlands, so mm -hmm. that you turn government land into swamp area instead of productive area. Um, so then you destroy a different value of the countryside, which is the social economic uh, infrastructure of the regions, of the municipalities. You, and then you uh, make uh, other negative trends stronger, is that uh, you reduce all the, the different farms which used to be owned by families uh, and uh, you concentrate farms into the hands of a few and uh, more uh, farms who are still connected to the countryside, uh, you destroy them as well. So from nature conservation, you radicalize it into a political instrument for food politics, for concentrating resources in the hands of a few. And redistributing wealth. And redistributing wealth, yeah. So it used to turn out well, and uh, the nature conservation in Holland was on a high level, really. We were an example to the world, we did, uh, we did a great job. We had a, a great uh, organization that I used to be a member of and that I also used to work for. Uh, it's called Nature Management, it's like uh, the Nature Conservancy in uh, America. Mm. And they had a great strategy, because what is the biggest uh, enemy of uh, natural beauty? It's government. Because they destroy it for all kind of corporate business projects, and uh, they started off by buying uh, an area with unique nature, and uh, the government of the city of Amsterdam wanted to turn it into a rubbish dump. So what did they do? They, they bought the area, and uh, well, they made a nature reserve into it, and this was their way of doing it. We sell of or we buy different types of uh, nature that are still found there, but now. From the 90s on, what did the government do? They absorbed nature monuments and made it into a hand of the government. So now it's actually for the half or more, it is financed by government and has been incorporated into uh, government. So what started off as a great enterprise, like uh, a private nature organization uh, buying up uh, valuable nature reserves, uh, or also castles with, uh, with uh, gardens around it, and, well, preserving the cultural heritage that we have. It has been turned more and more into a government instrument uh, in the hands of the Ministry of Agriculture to, uh, <coughs> to enforce, uh, to enforce uh, uh, land politics. And this, this is what we are now in. The other thing is that uh, what I was saying, how has the nature, the nature conservancy movement turned into a political instrument is by morphing it into climatism. Mm -hmm. So, and then you get that uh, they propose policies that actually destroy nature. Well, and there's uh, the, the, the big three is, of course, uh, 
that you uh, cut forest and you, then you burn it into a biomass plant. It's crazy. Yeah, and then you say that you save CO2. <laughs> it's really crazy. Uh, we have big uh, wind farms now in Natura 2000 areas here. They're hideous. Yeah, in, in bird migration areas. And they, who were supporting it? Nature monuments. Because if they say otherwise, if they say, well, we are opposed to it, then they are cut in, uh, in funding by the government. So they are obliged to do this. You know what we call them in Canada? Bird blenders. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's crazy. And now what we had built up in Holland, that we had a great... For this overcrowded country, we still have loads of nature. That's, so if you drive within an hour, you can be in a completely different landscape. It's, it's great. We have the uh, And now they're in rapidly, in just five or ten years, they're uh, destroying it. So it seems like, I, I actually came to talk about what's going on with the fishermen, but yeah. it, all of these things are tied in. It's, it's all the same thing. What's happening to the farmers? What's happening to the fishermen? What's happening to the industry? It seems to all have the same root causes. So yeah, with the fishermen, I, I've been, because uh, I've been an ecological advisor for the fishermen here. And in the name of Natura 2000, they say, we want to close fish, uh, fishing areas that they have been fishing for generations and generations. And this was done in the name of that they are disturbing the sea soil. And this argument they've been repeating over and over and over and over. But it's, it's a crazy argument, because you have, if you have the North Sea and you have the Wanna Sea, uh, which is just another part of the North Sea. <clears throat> if you have a big storm, uh, in one night the, the, soil, the sea soil is more uh, rooted up and, uh, and disturbed than in a year of fishing, for example. You can have sandbanks that, uh, that are removed like 30 meters by one storm. Still, the, the, these environmentalists, uh, paid by governments, are con continuously repeating the same argument. So that uh, nature conservation at sea has become synonymous with uh, driving away, uh, driving on fishermen. And it's, and, and it's working. They've, they've, made, they've yeah. made fishing too expensive. Yeah. Now they did, the, they, they were constantly looking at opportunities to reduce the, the fishing fleet. And now they actually succeeded by driving up uh, gas oil prices by uh, head diesel oil instead. Uh, and the Dutch government just refused to uh, support it, while the French government uh, supported its own fishermen. And the Dutch government said, we don't, uh, will not support you. So now that uh, of the 90 uh, big uh, fishing vessels, uh, 76 are now applying to quit. And if, they, if the government wants to subsidize them, quitting. So what remains of a once proud fishing fleet? Almost nothing. And then there's still 150 uh, shrimp uh, fishermen who are fishing uh, from the coasts. And they are now also uh, uh, played by new government re regulations on nitrogen of all uh, places. So, so the same regulations that are now also uh, uh, hitting the farmers, they are also applied to fishermen. Now, they are saying that if you uh, pass by the coast and uh, you burn uh, diesel oil, then nitrogen is coming from your ship. So you have to prove that you do not harm nature in the dunes of Holland uh, up to a radius of 25 kilometers. This well, is when did, when did nitrogen become a, pol a, pol a pollutant? It, our, our atmosphere is mostly nitrogen. No, it's not nitrogen in the atmosphere, of course. It's uh, NO2, it's uh, nitrogen oxide. Ah, yes. Or it's uh, from the farm, from the dung, from cows. It's uh, NH3, it's ammonia. Ammonia. Yeah. Well, ammonia, we, in, in Canada, we use ammonia to fertilize our fields. Of course, it's fertilizer. And here comes the other thing, because 
what is nature and what is damage to nature. And this is a different other trick they use. You have all kinds of environmental, uh, not natural parameters, but environmental parameters on which ground they say that, okay, you damage nature. And here they have uh, a, a parameter called critical uh, deposition load, which is uh, a risk number uh, that actually tells you when uh, vegetation is changing in an undesired way. Undesired to who? To a handful of ecologists somewhere in Wageningen. So, by applying this parameter and combining this with a calculation model called ARIES that uh, uh, is pretending it can calculate your emission from the point source uh, where it actually lands, which of course is not true, but because the government says this is the model that we use and also in the court of law uh, the, the model is reality, they can enforce this model, modeled reality, combined with this other parameter, critical deposition load, that says if there's so much uh, nitrogen falling on this area, then the vegetation will change in an undesired state. This combination of pseudo-reality, the government is now enforcing on both the fishermen and on the farmers. So the farmers and the fishermen are, are fucked in the same way. It's crazy. Yeah, and this is how they want to enforce this uh, kind of uh, limits to growth politics on uh, the people who produce our food. You know what they're doing? They're creating their own fairy tale. Yeah. It's yeah. a fiction. And they are used as the scapegoats while big industry is not in. Uh, also, uh, all the big traffic, uh, their emission is not, it's not calculated. Uh, also, uh, if you look at uh, air transport, uh, Schiphol or uh, airport doesn't have to uh, uh, report uh, all the, the uh, nitrogen emissions that the air, ah. aircrafts are. No, it's only up to 900 meters until, but everything of, uh, that is international air traffic, all this nitrogen emission, it's not calculated with it. So the, so the farmers and the fishermen, so the food producers, are the scapegoats of all nitrogen emissions. Because of course there is, in, uh, in natural areas, there is a problem with nitrogen emissions. If you want to save, like say, uh, in Holland it's 10% of the plant species who uh, thrive in uh, poor soils. And here comes the other thing. Why is it, uh, the nitrogen uh, lobby against farmers so big uh, from people who call themselves also nature conservationists? This has a historical uh, root cause and this is because uh, in Holland nature has become synonymous with poor soils. And why is that? It's very easy because we are a delta country. We are uh, a fertile delta country. So all the fertile lands were used for farming the first. When did the nature conservation movement come up? Only in the late 19th century, same as in America. Um, so what was left and still called nature reserves, this was all these poor soil kind of uh, different types of nature reserves, which was actually most of the time the result of uh, poor farming practices. For example, moorland, what is moorland? It's, uh, first it was a forest cut down, and then used by sheep farmers and uh, overgrazed. So what do you want to maintain? Poor soils with poor lands and you call that nature. So nature preservation has actually become a practice of 
uh, getting back poor soils and the different types of plant species that uh, grow better on poor soils. Here's the other interesting thing. So, so you, you understand what I said? I do, yeah. 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 So it's a crazy practice. You say we pro protect the nature, but you protect some. Some nature. But the rest you destroy, even. Mm -hmm. If you put all this in context, like what, what they're trying to do to the farmers and the, and the fishermen by reducing their nitrogen output, um, even if they accomplish these things, there's still a big, if it's a problem, there's still a big problem that's never going to be addressed. You have neighboring countries, well, not so much neighboring, mm -hmm. but you have China, Russia, India, who don't do these things. No, and, of course and, not. And on a global scale, they, they emit more of everything than every other country could buy. Yeah, yeah. So what we're doing here in, in Holland and in Canada is not going to make any difference except for reducing the quality of our life here. Yeah, well, it's uh, the, the main thing, uh, and this is always with this 2030 agenda kind of policies, never look at the intentions, but always look at the logical consequences. And if you look at the logical consequences and follow the money, who benefits, then you actually see that it's, of course, it's not about nitrogen, it's about, uh, uh, about acquiring uh, farmer's land with public money, mm -hmm. and this farmer land is then transferred into private hands. This is what they're doing. This is the people, people should literally be protesting, marching in the streets over this, because another thing people don't understand, you mentioned the government is going to buy farmland worth $29 billion. Yeah. Um, France is subsidizing their fishermen. It's not the government. No. It's you and every other person in Holland that's paying and sharing this burden yeah. for poor policy. But again, I dev developed this scheme for debasing also, so that you actually know what you're talking about and that you do not talk on different levels at the same time. Because there's always... Uh, four levels that you talk about. It's by a uh, course on bullshit detection. Uh, it's uh, based on the, the book uh, On Bullshit by Harry G. Frankfurt. And he uh, defines bullshit as a people having no concern for truth. So it's not about truth or the facts, but it's, uh, you can only have a meaningful conversation with people if they at least have the motivation to find the truth. If they don't, if they don't have a love for truth, then the rest doesn't matter. And this also has to do with values. Uh, and the other part, uh, the, the scheme of four, I derived from a climate scientist, uh, Mike Yule. He wrote this book, it's called uh, Why We Disagree About Climate Change. And he came from a different perspective to the same analysis, analysis as I uh, did by following this climate debate, non-debate actually, in the last 15 years. And uh, he, there were activists uh, who were uh, pushing him, okay, be more alarmist so then we can have uh, more extreme politics. And he said, oh, I don't like that because then I'm not a serious scientist anymore. But this is the, uh, uh, you get uh, a fight with people if you, dis if you don't understand each other or if you have different values. Now here, come back to the farmer's perspective. Uh, there's four levels that you debate on. First is the technical one. Uh, what are the facts? Uh, how bad is it? Uh, but now we were just talking about level two, the economics. How much good can you do per, per euro for the given purpose that you say it is for? And there's the, the other way of thinking about values. The f I uh, talked in front of a farmer's protest uh, twice in Dronten and on another part. And I said, don't look at economics first. Uh, because I already see that half of my, the public that is now supporting me here, if the government comes with some million euros of subsidies for this kind of scheme, they're out. They're out. Yeah, yeah you're already out. So it's based on your values. And I 
told him about this. Uh, there was this daughter of a farmer who sent an angry, let, uh, uh, an angry letter to, uh, to the government, to the Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, saying that we, ha we still have values, we, uh, we love our animals, we love our lives, so why are you taking this away from us? Well, uh, this letter was go going viral through the internet, and she made more moral points, uh, giving her more moral victory over their opponents, than all this argumenting by this uh, farmers' organizations like the LTO, who will say, oh, we only talk about facts and not about emotion. This is also a modernist argument. It's crazy mm -hmm. that emotions are the opposite of facts. That's crazy. Of course not. If, uh, the, if the facts and evidence show you that someone is fucking you, then you get angry. Being angry is not an irrational uh, thing then. It's a logical consequence of knowing that someone is lying to you. So there's also healthy emotions. Uh, but we were talking on level two and level three. The other one is politics. I find this the least interesting. It's about left-wing or right-wing, but it's more about uh, who's controlling the money. The, sometimes you need more government control because otherwise you get monopolies or you get people cheating. And sometimes market solutions are uh, more effective. This is, uh, but we're, not, we're now here. How much good can we do per euro? If we uh, want to save nature, well, define what nature it is. Because uh, if you have uh, dunes that have more forest growth, well, still beautiful. Uh, but if you use all this money just to buy a farmer's land and destroy the complete social economics of the, the countryside, you destroy more than you do good. So all this 29 billion euros that they do want to spend, in what pockets are they landing? This is a great argument that also has a moral uh, component that you can say, hey, they are stealing public money for private profit. And then we come to the core of the 2030 agenda, which is an amoral agenda um, that you can say that the Rutte regime that is now, it's a regime of liars and thieves. They are immoral people uh, because they steal public money uh, for a private benefit, and then you come to uh, lobbies of the WEF and the World Economic Forum. Who is the driver behind it? It's uh, DSM, it's Unilever, uh, and it's Wageningen an Agricultural University. So it lands in the, into the pockets of oligarchy. And if the farmers put their energy in pointing out the immoral side of that, they uh, can also convince the other side, who is still saying that, oh, we have to save nature and save the world, which is a moral argument. So if you have to recognize, uh, if you defend yourself, are they using a moral argument, are they using, at first, are they using an economic argument or a technical argument? Or are they using a technical argument while to, they want to hide economics? For example, they say, we need to do much more, it's, the, it's worse than we thought, the science. Why do they say it? Because they want, at any cost, and the costs are no, no matter, and why is that? Because they have often they have an extreme view on nature that we hear that more and more at any cost no. at any cost at any cost who are these ecologists because they actually say the less humans there are the better which does, this is why they also always propose the most expensive schemes at any cost we should uh, we should do it and uh, we still from the good side have done a poor job in formulating a, a moral story that weighs out much more uh, 
that we have better values than our opponents. And this is where it starts. I did this with, uh, this with my book about... I was just going to say, you yeah. should write a book. I did. What's the book called? It's called... I'm pretty Rather sure people want to see this. Rather Dead Than Slave, there's also... Uh, this is why I also wear my t-shirt. About it. it's, it's about a mentality. Uh, I think... Because it starts with mentality, with the morals and values that you have. Um, this is also... Uh, um, is the... If you want to win, you need to be strong. And how are you, uh, can you be strong by having the right values so that you do, you're not blown away uh, by the first uh, level of resistance or risk? You see that a lot. Yeah. I was arrested for three times um, and uh, mishandled. I was uh, pepper sprayed by uh, police and uh, put in jail uh, for speaking out my, uh, what, I want to, uh, what I think are the right values. You have to risk that. So rather than a slave is an old Frisian uh, proverb and it's, uh, it was about uh, the Frisian independence. There was, in the high middle ages, the Frisians were an independent people. They were not governed by a count or by, well, maybe a little bit by the emperor in, somewhere in Germany there, but they didn't mind. Uh, the bishops uh, didn't have anything to say. And they uh, had a, 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 a unique way of self-governance. And uh, they also had a big military uh, victory over uh, a count from Holland who wants to conquer this area and put it under control. So this is uh, rather dead than slave. It's with my uh, wife on, in front of it. She uh, poses as Ophelia, who also uh, in this uh, uh, 19th century painting uh, by George Millet, I think it was him, Millet, uh, who chooses death over a mediocre life. Because, uh, well, it's the choice between uh, yeah, living a life as a slave when that you do not really live or uh, a radical choice that you sometimes you do not put water in the wine but you speak out what you stand for. But then you have to know what you stand for. And th there's this, I, I noticed this as well in the, the Dutch so-called freedom movement. Uh, it's more about liberalism I was talking about. Uh, then about real values. Yeah, I want to be free. Well, what is that then? It's the same in Canada. Yeah. Same thing. So they come up with new agey, stuffy, uh, fluffy, uh, well, uh, yeah, like more uh, the, the right to be as much busy with yourself as possible. Instead of that you have a social story to tell. This is how we want to live ourselves, uh, our lives. This is what we value the most. And this is, well, what is freedom then? So everyone uh, in Holland, uh, the most of them, has somehow absor absorbed uh, a definition of uh, freedom that's completely opposite, actually. Because it's more about being busy with ourselves or about not caring any about anyone else uh, than about caring about what you want to stand for. So this is why I, uh, first, in the first chapter, I go to... Uh, what is being free actually about, also in a historical context and in a, in a philosophical context. And then um, I come more at the classical uh, foundation of, uh, of liberty, which is something that has constantly uh, been defended. And you have to have, uh, well, discipline is freedom, for example. And you have to work hard, otherwise there's no freedom. It's not a right that is coming at you uh, on a piece of paper handed out by government. Well, we saw that at the corona times. Mm -hmm. We're only free if they allow us to be. 
exactly. Freedom is only something that you conquer. And that you conquer it by, by fighting. And this is also the, what history tells us. So we need to be more realist about what freedom is. And also uh, we have to notice that most people do not want to be free. They want to be serfs. And even that should not be a real big problem as long as we have uh, an elite, just like in the, uh, the biblical sense of uh, a good king. Is that a good king was someone who is a good example, who has the right values, who does, does the right thing for his country. So, uh, and what we lack now is leaders with a moral compass, with a good correct, uh, character. So also in Friesland now, most uh, politicians and also leaders in uh, public office and in institutions, instead of uh, rather dead than slave, they're more like uh, rather weak and, uh, and uh, uh, well, how do you say it? They walk along with the rest. They do not want to take risks. Yeah, we don't have, we're short on leaders. We have politicians who want to get in front of the polls. Yeah. No matter if the, what the yeah. polls say is wrong. Yeah. Right? And uh, so then... I come to the conclusion that we have to ditch liberalism and uh, look more into traditional values and, uh, well, being more classical uh, human. I've been uh, working on this also, like the last 10 years, uh, also by training my Kung Fu, which is also a traditional, a traditional way of practicing yourself both mentally and, uh, and physically, and uh, also by, by studying, so that instead of looking at mass media continuously, you uh, develop your own media and you study more, just like and this concept I called uh, the Abbey. I also I end the the book also with this period in Friesland where you had big abbeys here. In uh, we were more Catholic than the Pope here now than in the High Middle Ages. And these abbeys were also thriving agricultural centers with uh, loads of innovation and knowledge uh, exchange and uh, and the uh, bastions of uh, classical values. So I end up there, and uh, that's uh, because we now live in uh, an atheist and materialist world. Uh, this is also uh, this is a book. It's called the Benedict Option. Who also uh, wrote about it, and it's that you have to create your own world there and set your own values. And uh, we have to accept that uh, we are not a majority anymore, but uh, have to create this kind of communities. Uh, and this is for a start. So then, uh, after ditching the, the modernist, uh, liberalist view, we get into a classic modus, and from there you can also uh, select what is fits into my world and what does not fit into it. And the farmers are still much into uh, this. Uh, well, they still do not really know what to choose for. They, by living their lives uh, connected with nature and working hard. They are still more connected with the classical world, but because they also consume mass media and stuff there with their heads, they are somehow still also a little bit in the modern world. So I think we have to make a, a more uh, uh, a more radical choice in this way. That you, what am I really working for? It's for my family. It's for my surroundings. It's for my uh, uh, for my region, for my country. Also, a healthy form of nationalism. And, uh, well, then you have a basis to stand on. Then you have ground to stand on that you want to fight for. Because otherwise you pick up the, the globalist narrative. And this is the same with the New Agers. New Age, 
it's a product of the same agenda as the 2030 agenda. It's also globalism. Mm -hmm. It's from the same uh, thinkers, from uh, Helena Blavatsky and her, uh, and her uh, pupil, like uh, Alice Bailey, uh, who was the inventor of the term New Age. So New Age, like being busy with yourself all day, uh, lying on your yoga mat, uh, it's, it's, it's the same product that uh, that's only makes you uh, uh, weak and makes you go alone. So, this is in a sense what, uh, <laughs> what I've experienced more as a riser, but now uh, we have to put it in practice. And if we want to, to uh, go to a solution, in Holland it's, it's actually quite simple. Uh, the environmentalists they have been financed to death by billions of government subsidies and by the postcode lottery, which is the biggest lottery in the world. It's also exported to Sweden, to uh, Great Britain. Well, um, however, they, they groom big in money and in media influence. But if you look at, uh, look at the, the support uh, the people are giving to the farmers, they support the farmers, actually. We more. see that all up and down the highways, flags upside down, hearts and windows. Yeah, they support the farmers more uh, or less, and also the fishermen. So they have the, the public sympathy, but in media it almost looks like the, the environmentalists have all the sympathy, but it's only bought sympathy. They're the ones with the money. They're the ones with the money. So you can buy or rent the, the, the room between people's ears. This is what has been proven here in Holland. And this is also part of the solution. Uh, why should we uh, put public money into private interests of uh, big NGOs? And big NGOs are the instruments of corporate business, like the, also like WEF, which is now also an NGO. And uh, so if we have the right uh, leaders who say enough is enough, we stop funding environmentalists, then their influence is reduced actually to their real support in society. So then they are not called uh, non-governmental organizations because they have become governmental extensions. And uh, they've become, uh, and they're not, uh, uh, what is the other uh, term they use? Uh, Mm -hmm. so, so, oh yeah, civil society it's also mm -hmm. they're not civil society they're minority interests just look at uh, the biggest uh, anti-lobbying organizations uh, against fishermen uh, there's this uh, North Sea Foundation it has maybe 1000 or 2000 members that's all all their income is coming from the lottery uh, from the government and from a few supporters or from corporate uh, like uh, Eneco the big energy company and why is that? And also from Boscalis, which is, uh, by the way, is the biggest uh, sand uh, miner from the North Sea. And here the arguments come together now. What did I say to the fishermen? You're destroying the sea the bottom. But what is, the, what is government doing with this Boscalis and the big companies? They, they made the North Sea into the biggest sand mining area in the world. So they say to the fishermen, and they make the environmentalists say, it's the fishermen, it's the fishermen. <laughs> While on the other hand, 70 billion cubic meters of sand are moved from North Sea for building activities by government and by big, uh, by big uh, companies who pay environmentalists to say it's the fishermen. So if we uh, put away their funding, it's well, a job done. And these same organizations that you mentioned before, if you follow the money, you figure it out, right? Yeah. And a lot of these organizations, they're nothing more than an arm of a bigger corporation yeah. that's influencing a certain area to change things so that they can come in and do what they want. Yes. Like, I imagine that uh, 
Are they, are they, is that organization, uh, the Mercy Foundation, are they mm -hmm. fighting or encouraging, um, looking into what, what the wind turbines are doing in the ocean? No, probably not. And they're supporting it. They're supporting it. And yet, yeah. and yet. And uh, the, the, one of the uh, trustees of ENECO uh, is in their board. Course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and we see this all over the world. Yeah. It's no yeah. different in Canada, no. no different in the United States. And people, you, you mentioned before, um, sometimes they don't care about facts. No. It's true. It, because the facts are there. People can, they can read these facts and they can see where the money goes. And, it, and it's corrupt as can be. Yeah. But they have a feeling because they see a duck with oil on it on TV. Or they mm -hmm. see a picture of fracking, which is grossly misrepresented, that is d destroying the world. And those feelings make them ignore the facts to the point where we're allowing policies that are against human beings. Mm, yeah, but you can also say that uh, it's not feelings versus facts. It should be. No, but for, no, 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 but no. for most people. They know they're professional marketeers. Oh yeah, those people, yes. But I'm talking yeah. about the average person is, that goes out and books. Yeah, but they know, uh, and this is, uh, we are too honest. In some way, and this is also for the farmers, they, people who want to hammer on facts, and this is why I say you have to start with moral values. You are morally super, superior to environmentalists, and we should call them eco-fascists and uh, anti-human. They are immoral people. This is the, the, the starting point. Environmentalists are immoral people. And uh, this is the main argument that we always need to uh, put our minds on. It's not about facts, it's not about science, it's that, that we, we combat an anti-human, almost satanist kind of uh, ideology. And this is what it's about. And from there, the starting point, we can start with economics and then we can start with science. And the environmentalists, they know it, uh, that people do not care about facts. So that's why they start with emotions and they win every campaign. Exactly. Yeah, and this is, this is what they know. Uh, Goebbels already knew it, so uh, this is how to... Uh, to, to, to influence a mass, you do not start with arguments, but you uh, promote Hitler as a sexy man, for example. Well, eco-fascism and the fascism of uh, the Nazis, it's, I call them also climazis, because that's what they are. They want less humans, and they don't care how they uh, manage to uh, get this goal, and if people die of starvation, they don't care, as long as they don't see it themselves. So we fight people that are not, not really, who do not have real human value, values because they only fight for abstractions that do not exist. And here we come back to where we started. It's the environmentalism. It's about bureaucratic abstractions. It's about parameters. It's about models. Human inventions. Fata uh, Morganas uh, who are not really there. And we fight for things that are really there. Or gardens, or paradise, yeah? or farms, or farms, which is your own paradise in some way, because you have, because of owner rights, you have at least had the idea that before all the bureaucrats came uh, intervening, you had the idea this was your own ground to stand on, mm -hmm. where you can live your life the way you want to, your own paradise, and then uh, then you fight for a completely different thing than uh, say uh, ten cent more milk money per liter. No. I, I gotta say, this is probably one of the most in-depth conversations that I've had about these issues so far. So, uh, um, like, you've touched on so many points and you, you've, you've un uncovered so many things that people don't think about. I'm really excited to get this out. 
But now I got to ask, and I should have done it in the beginning. How did you get to the place you are right now, where you you think about these issues the way you do? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what's your background? Where? Well, I started off as uh, I already mentioned that I was doing ecological advice for the fishermen, and they were constantly uh, harassed by environmentalists, as they who were saying, "Oh, you're destroying the seabed." And then you start first. You start off with techie, technical arguments. You start looking at the scientific uh, evidence that they use, that the, the scientific papers, and then you see, hey, uh, this paper is only is saying, claiming it has found something, but it's, this is only based on another paper that they're referring to. If you look at that paper, the evidence is still not there, but it's referring to another paper. And this is the way the government uses it, so like a sandwich strategy and somewhere, well, they have some, done some measurements claiming that it is possible. Then I thought, hey, it's not about scientific evidence because they, they don't really have it. So it's more about an economic scheme. And this is why I also came to this four-point scheme of knowing what we're talking about. So it's more through experience in this, uh, this dossier that you come uh, as a science journalist, what, I, what is my profession, that you come to this conclusion that, hey, it's, it has never been about science, neither, not, not even about economics or politics. It's been about uh, moral values, and then you start questioning your own values. And what do I really do to uh, defend my values? And then I, yeah, then I came to my book, actually. You're, yeah, your your comments are more. They're they're. I'm sh- I, I know that you know the science, but they're less about science and more about the f- philosophical arguments behind what's ha- happening. That's not even feel, uh, philosophy. It's it's real values. What do you want to defend in your life? What is worth living for? This is what uh, this is the starting point. And from there on, of, of course, you have to get your facts right. This is, but this is, this is more a toolbox. And what I notice now is also in farmer, farmers, they are still thinking uh, as if they lived 20 years ago. And they're still thinking in terms of left and right. Well, if I look now at uh, people who are called now right-wing or even fascists, they share the same values as the, the, the left-wings from the 80s did. The only difference is the color of their clothes now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They change... Because if you had uh, the anarchists in the beginning of the 80s and the end, end of the 70s, they distrusted government, they didn't want any government interference in their lives, and they wanted to manage their own uh, communities. So I find now that some uh, leftist communities who do their own uh, biological farming, I share more values with than people from the so-called right-wing liberals party, who have become nihilists and only care about money. Yeah. So, so you get a different, even uh, old-fashioned socialists, you can, uh, well, people would see me as a right-wing or even extreme right, I don't care. Uh, I, I, even with old-fashioned socialists, I share more values than with the whole middle nothingness of uh, liberalism. That's kind of where I find myself, too. I've even yeah. maybe stopped calling myself conservative because I don't, yeah. you know, those values aren't, aren't my values. Anymore. No, just look at uh, what... Uh, uh, who's this guy who was uh, uh, Boris uh, Johnson, who was also from the Tories. The Tories have been so much being ent- entangled with the corporate sponsors that they don't, do not care about conservative values. Not at all. That's our problem in Canada. Too, yeah. In Alberta. Yeah. yeah. So we need to get rid of them because they're not real uh, leaders with real values. So having said that, is there a political solution to this? Well, politics is not the, the first solution, because uh, you start with having a personal strength. And this comes with real values motivated in his, uh, that are rooted in history and where you come from. So from your upbringing, from your, 
well, traditional values. So it's more traditionalism and actually I think we are more like uh, reactionaries than uh, left-wing or right-wing. Uh, from there, we also see that in Holland we had great success, but also very tight uh, resistance and even uh, that they are now calling to, uh, to uh, the party that is most successful, they want to uh, make it illegal. And uh, people like me, they, they start arresting because they know uh, we have more to say than just uh, boo. If you just are against something, you do not win. You're the, the worst type of criminal there is, is the one that speaks against the government. Yeah, but also knows what he's speaking about. And this is also uh, the other downside of... They always talk about freedom of speech. But if this, this also uh, means the, the freedom of nonsense, well, you also have a responsibility to first spend at least uh, hundreds of hours of study before you th claim yourself to be an expert about anything. This is also this is a responsibility. And uh, people have, really have to uh, think about it. Well, Jordan Peterson is one of the, the examples who is uh, at least also on the moral side by, by, by study and by showing expertise that uh, it also becomes more believable what you say. Uh, he starts, uh, I am I, a Christian, and, but I lost kind of contact with uh, biblical teachings. And but because of the readings of uh, Peterson and combining it with science, then I also started back again, uh, looking at, hey, what, uh, what can we learn from classical writings, for example? So, uh, studying as well, and it, it all comes down to, uh, well, not being lazy and, well, <laughs> work hard and, uh, well, well, classical ethics. And the farmers still have them, because they, uh, if they don't do not work hard, their, uh, their business goes down. So, for them it's natural, especially also for the fishermen. I worked uh, on a fishing uh, boat uh, for a week on the North Sea and did their routine and wow, it's hard, work. it's hard work, yeah, it's two hours up, two hours up, uh, sleeping, two hours up, all day, 24 hours on, on and on and on and on and on, Jeez. yeah, well, first do that, so uh, uh, politicians of our parties should not be people who have only studied, but they, they should know what working is. They should have worked, for example, on an oil platform, or they should have worked on a fishing boat, or worked as a farmer, but know, uh, know what working in society is about. Because there are some things, you can have viewpoints, but viewpoints, uh, well, anybody can read something on a, on a pamphlet and then uh, say blah, blah, blah. Some things, they, uh, they, they can't be taught, they can only be learned. Right. Exactly, yeah. And also, uh, yeah, a viewpoint is more like uh, personal characteristics, uh, characteristics uh, takes that matter. If you have the right viewpoints, but you're still a lazy ass and you're uh, not trustworthy, you're nothing. So again, uh, we come back on values and uh, politics based on real values of, of real personalities. And uh, this is also what the cultural of of modernism and liberalism has created uh, pussies. Yeah. That's an appropriate word. Yeah, but still is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People who are uh, uh, dishonest and, uh, and every decision is based on fear instead of uh, on courage. So, and the Frisian motto then, uh, rather dead than slave, is based on courage. And this is what I, I like. Uh, even though they put me in prison, uh, I thought, oh, I. I'll get out, I do, do not get a death sentence, so I'll survive anyway. 
and I still speak out because uh, I thought uh, uh, they won't get me down. And uh, the people who act like that are a real threat to the, the status quo. Well, I only went to jail once, but I was uh, prepared to do it again. Food was horrible, but it wasn't that bad. Mm. And it was the right thing to do. Yeah. I actually, uh, I went to jail because I protested, and I think that's important that we protest, because if yeah. we can't protest, what's left? There's nothing else. Yeah. And actually, the government helped me with this, because it only uh, raised my status and helped me sell more books. And yeah. me as so, well. Yeah. So, thank you, government. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Wow, that was uh, a lot of information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit uh, like an HD, uh, HD guy, ADHD guy. No, so no, I jump from there to there and there to there. But it's uh, good because you know some of those uh, those points you're making, people don't think about those things. No, but it took me long to understand because just like I said, I first started on technical debating, and while somebody you know somebody is cheating on you, but you start going back to the facts. But they don't if they don't care about the facts, why worry about facts? You have to notice that they are uh, challenge you, uh, challenging you on a moral level. And they only say, if you say, oh, you don't care about the climate. Well, they don't either. Of course not. But they, the only thing that they say then, I am morally superior to you. Well, just answer like, who do you think you are? Yeah. He's only referring to himself, not to the climate. He doesn't care about the climate. So just rationalize what they really think about and then... Uh, counter them with what they actually are saying, and then they are away. They quit. Get the wolf out of the hen house. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'm gonna actually, uh, I'll, I'll link to your book on my site because I think I'll sell some books for you. And no, but it, it's, it's in Dutch, but uh, well, it's a photo book and it's about uh, also the, the beauty of our natural history from the, from the Ice Ages to uh, the Middle Ages. And to the modern times, but it's still preserved there. Dutch is fine. In my area where I'm from, we have uh, hundreds of Dutch families. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. van Benton, he uh, was the skater uh, who uh, won the, the Elf Cities, uh, 11 Cities uh, skating, uh, uh, what is it called, contest, mm -hmm. which is the most famous and most important skating contest in uh, the Dutch history. And he moved to Canada because he didn't have space here for farming. So maybe he lives in Alberta with you. He may. The Dutch yeah. have a lot of farmland in Alberta. Yeah, I think Lots so. of dairy farms and they're mm. really, really good at it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is a, a part of, uh, well, Frisian tradition, but also of our DNA a little bit. Because if you look at a dog, like for example a terrier, it is a certain breed. It's, it is uh, aggressive, it's a hunting dog. And it's not because of its culture, but because it is bred into it. And you see this also with Frisians. Uh, you find them uh, around the world. Uh, we have a Frisian diaspora. We have loads of Frisians with talent for farming and enterprise. They move to Canada, to America. They, they're everywhere in the world. And they're successful in what they're doing. Well, this is not only a cultural thing, but it's also in their DNA, in the way, in their upbringing and, and in their roots. And this is what I write about. It's not, not a coincidence. That, uh, and it comes from the history of the Frisians where they also were... Well, just like proto-Vikings, they were a successful uh, seafaring uh, nation. Frisian coins have been found on Iceland, in Russia, everywhere. So we, we travel the world seas and, uh, well, some, well, all the uh, cows in the world, the, the most successful cow is the Frisian cow, for example. So there's, 
there's so much in our history that is uh, worth uh, first knowing and then also standing uh, for, instead of that you uh, make it be destroyed by globalists and uh, that you forget about it yourself. It's also crazy that most Christians do not even know about it anymore. And this is also a reason why I started uh, doing research for this. At school, bringing, uh, being uh, brought up in Frisia, I was never taught that uh, Friesland used to be way bigger than it's now this small province. Uh, that we were actually masters of the seas and that we uh, were so important in defining also European history. Also that we had this big freedom tradition, never learned of it. So it's also uh, reconquering your own past that has been rewritten after uh, other people took over power so that we were overpowered by other uh, uh, well, like the Hague and the, the Orange family, the Royal House, which are a bunch of Germans, by the way. So, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. well. wow. So we still we are still occupied by Germans, yeah, in some way, yeah, like Klaus Schwab. So that begs another question: Is there a, a, a Frisian independence movement? Well, well, you said there was, but it's kind of fragmented. It's fragmented. Yeah, this is also, alas, one of the typical characteristics of uh, Frisians. If you are too independent, you cannot organize yourself uh, well well enough. And this is also the tragedy of uh, the Frisians since the, since the year 1498. Because they had so much different fractions, and like the clans in Scotland as well, who were always also fighting each other, uh, they were not able to organize well and keep the enemy out. Yes, and we have the same problem in Alberta. No. People are so independent-minded that they have a hard time cooperating with other independent-minded people. Yeah, there's actually, uh, I got a book uh, from uh, a friend of us who is also in the study of Frisian history, and it's from the 1940s, uh, when we were occupied by the Nazis, and you have still had this racial ideology, and the, the Frisians were then called a prime example of the North German race. Well, okay, <laughs> have it like that. But they, they made the same point, like, hey, the Frisians, they, they might be... Uh, uh, real, true uh, uh, North German Germanics, and they have great characteristics. But the, the net downside is that they are unable to. They are too anarchists, and they are unable yeah. to organize and control them. Yeah. So this is why uh, the the uh, why they are still conquered by others, and this is happening now as well. So we have uh, this fraction is saying, "Oh, I do not want to have to do anything with him, or I do not want to." Uh, uh, they all want to do it for themselves. Human beings are all the same, no matter what time zone you're in. Yes. Same problems. Yeah. But anyway, well, then, then they should at least buy my book. And, uh, there you go. Yeah. I'm sure some will. All right. Well, that was awesome. Thank you very yeah. much. Really appreciate it. And uh, that's going to, I'm sure people are going to enjoy that. We're going to sell some books for you. All right. <laughs>